Please be seated. Amen. Man, it's good to be here. If you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 11, and then put a finger over in Matthew chapter 6, if you would, please. Um, we've been endeavoring to um, educate ourselves about prayer. Um, the disciples came to Jesus and said, hey, um, teach us to pray. Uh, interesting question. But what I want to preface this with this morning is I put together a little sheet, found, did a little research. Um, the Lord's Prayer isn't just something that Jesus just invented when he was asked, but it's all based on what he described in his word in the Old Testament. So there's a sheet out on the table, um, if you like, to where all of those phrases come from. Um, they're referenced in the Old Testament. Uh, it's a really cool study, um, even if you just look them up. But anyway, there's a sheet out there for you if you'd like to grab that. If they're gone, just email me. I'll just email it to you. Um, but Luke chapter 11 is where we're at. Um, we've talked about what prayer is. Uh, we identified that it's worship, that that's the foundation of who we are as a people, whether it's corporately or you as a family individually. It begins with worship. It's the foundation to our life as in Christ. We talked about the criteria for prayer, the circumstances of prayer, and some of the content. And this morning, it's patterns of powerful, plaudent prayer. I had to look up plaudent. It just means praise, but it didn't fit really well in the title. <laughs> so we want to have powerful Praise-filled prayers is what we're after. And that's what Jesus is doing in this description. And in Luke chapter 11, when his disciples came to him, it says this. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. How often have you got to a place where you see somebody doing something? Man, I'd like to learn how to do that, right? I'd like to know how to do that. I may not be good at it, but at least I'd like to try. So for... Two and a half years, roughly, when we get to Luke chapter 11, thereabouts, just before Jesus is walking into Jerusalem and the crucifixion, they have been, the disciples have been seeing Jesus do this consistently, regularly. He would get up early, Scripture says sometimes, and go off and pray, for, or overnight, which is really hard for me to do personally. <laughs> but they saw this pattern in his life. They saw John's disciples do the same thing. And they came to him and said, teach us to pray. Even it makes reference here in that first, second verse, as John taught his disciples to pray. When you pray, Jesus said, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we, all, uh, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not in temptation. Now that's a little shorter version when you go to Matthew 6. And I'm going to kind of mush those together this morning a little bit. As we talk through, what are these patterns? How do we pray? And I want to try to give you some examples on how to do that, to pray through Scripture and so on. But the question arises, is, what is interesting to me, is why the disciples need to be taught? Why do they need to be taught how to pray? You're thinking, well, because they didn't know. Well, yeah, I get that. But this is the nation of Israel, right? I mean, this is God's people. Of all the things, they should know how to do this. I mean, since Egypt and, and God bringing them out of Egypt, they've been, they've been about this and being about God's people for hundreds of years. What don't they know? And so we get a small picture. If you go over to Matthew chapter 6, you get an understanding of how things change and evolve over time and what gets lost. And if you go to Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, Jesus is teaching this. It's not a question this time. Remember, these are two different circumstances. The Sermon on the Mount, this is 
early in Jesus' ministry. Jesus says this, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Well, that's a way to start a lesson, isn't it? (laughs) Hey, don't be like these people. Don't do that. And he calls them out. Meek and mild, loving Jesus, right? For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they can be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they receive their reward. They get a reward, and there it is. Man, look how, look how righteous those, they, I mean, they, they, they're so much better than I am. That's their reward, right? And so he goes on and describes what some of those things are. So we get a picture of something's transpired between when God calls a nation together called Israel and the time Jesus is involved in ministry, something has taken place. And so when it comes to prayer, we discovered it's not meant to be a mantra. You can pray this prayer. In fact, he says this, um, when you pray, say. But it's not to be this rote thing that you just rattle off really quick. Just like, that, just like our music when we, when we come into worship, it's not supposed to be some karaoke experience for you. And you're not thinking, you're not processing, you're not understanding. Your heart's not in it, in other words. And so Jesus says, don't keep up these empty phrases, he continues in that section. It just means to chatter or babble. That's the Greek word for that, is what that means. That somehow thinking the more you say and rattle these words off, the more God's going to hear you. He says, don't do that either. And so over the years, you end up with something that the disciples who went to synagogue, they went growing up and hearing these things, seeing these things, they learned to pray the wrong way. And now they see this contradiction that Jesus is doing something completely different. And so that comes, that comes the question. We must understand that by the time Jesus is now in his earthly ministry, the time that this question gets asked, the conversation they're having, the nation of Israel really isn't one, is it? They're no longer what they used to be under David and Solomon and so on. The Old Testament, the scriptures that they would read in synagogues didn't mean anything to anybody else but them. There was no impact in the rest of the world at that point. In fact, so much so that Rome was ruling over them. It didn't mean anything. They were uh, this spiritual nation, or this ideology of what was happening. They were an island in a sea of paganism all around the world and all around them. And I believe the same is true when the church began in the New Testament. Nobody knew Jesus was crucified except if you were there in the city. And you hear that in the, in the book of Acts. You know, the conversations that took place. But haven't you heard? Didn't, weren't you here? Didn't you see this? No one else knew. So I believe we find ourselves in our day more akin to the first century than we ever have before. So whether you were from Corinth in the New Testament or a country Christian church in the 21st century... The circumstances seem to me to be very similar. We are an island surrounded by pagan worship of all sorts of things. The rejection, in other words, of the living God being replaced with something else. And people bowing down to the cultural gods, if you will. So my point is this. You and I are no less susceptible to know how to pray than the disciples were then. So when God brought the people out to Mount Sinai... Their attitude, what they saw was the sovereign, righteous, holy judge. When you read that, Hebrews even defines that in chapter 12, that God is a consuming fire. And so you think about that and go, well, why would I approach that? 
Well, if you understand what's taking place, there's two things. Remember that God is holy. What does he say? You and I are supposed to be holy. The recognition is, I can't in and of myself. But nonetheless, he is calling them out because he is a loving and good God. He's approachable. He's meant to be worshipped as well, though. So 1 Peter reminds us, be holy as I am holy. There's a whole litany of things about the nature and character of God being holy and pure to to draw them out as a a loving dad would. So there's authority. In other words, you can't compartmentalize God in such a narrow version of who you think he is. He's much bigger and broader. Psalms 50, call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. I want you to hear these patterns of what we've talked about. When he calls, I will answer him. I will be with him in time of trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Psalms 145, give ear to my prayer, O God. Hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me, answer me. Psalms 55. Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. I call to you when my heart is faint. Psalm 61, what we read. See, God wants to be, this. not that he wants to be, but he wants us to know him as he is, this loving, good God, but also to know the nature of his character, that he is to be honored and feared. So the first pattern I want to work through is this, Jesus' prayer, our Father. There is a whole host of things when we understand that concept to recognize what's involved so basically there's two things there is God and there is us right pretty simple I agree but when I evaluate my prayer life lately that I've shared with you how much of them are just centered on me and what I need it's like okay you know God here I am and and just and it would be like my son coming to me and just asking for stuff and not even considering who I am. Dad, I just need you to do this, this, and this. Could you imagine a relationship like that? Every time you have a conversation with your children, I just need you to do this for me. How would you feel? It's interesting also to me that other religions and other ideas of deity back in that day, and again, not different from our day, they were unable to feel, they were indifferent to what was going on in the world. When you compare, in other words, the deities that man created and what you were having to do, respond to, and whatever, completely different than the nature and character of God. So first, God is this living God. He surpasses anything that you and I can be as human created beings um, that he's created. So honestly, we can't overstate this, but I'm trying to move quickly, that our Father, God is a father. When you go to the Old Testament, it's extremely rare to find anyone commenting him as such. The only few places I found were Isaiah 63 and 64. The only time he's ever mentioned as father. Father is this position of authority, a paternity, the sustainer, compassion, discipline, love, and so on that a good dad would bring into his family. It's understanding that everything is generated by that authority, by God our Father to his children. Our Father. Not mine, but collectively, that's another, um, it's a whole other sermon just right there. That we gather collectively, which we're 
inviting you to come this coming Wednesday to do just that, to come together, to set some time aside to pray together as a congregation. And the Hebrew, the, the word is Abba, which is the most intimate, um, tender way in Hebrew that you could refer to your dad. And Jesus pushes this point even farther uh, in Luke eleven ten and 13. He wants you to understand that he is a good dad, that he is approachable. He even does this when you go to John chapter 20 and verse 17, where he says, I am going to my father and yours. That, and you go, okay, yeah, great. But you have to understand that is so far outside the realm of understanding as Jewish people. To have that intimate relationship that there's God in heaven cares about me. He's concerned about me like a good dad would be. That was so far removed from their understanding. The only place when Jesus prays that we have in scripture where he does not refer to God as his father is at the cross. Where he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is a reference to a psalm, by the way. Maybe one of the reasons the Jews at that time didn't refer to God as their father is because they were an apostate nation by then. They weren't in right relationship, in other words, with the God who brought them out of Egypt, who delivered them. So they're distant in their relationship. What happens when you're distant in your relationships? We have this tendency to get around the edges and not, not entertain anything as far as making that rela- relationship more intimate. And you struggle with your husband or your wife, right? Or your kids or your boss. I mean, whatever relationship that is, when there's tension there, what does it do? It tends to drive you apart. Where it once maybe was intimate, but now it's not. And that's where they're at. The prophet Malachi began his book with this very idea of this estranged relationship that they had. He says, as a son honors his father, he's referring to God in Israel, if I'm your father, why aren't you honoring me? If I'm your father, then I should have the honor rightfully due as dad. That's, that's his point to the Israelite nation. If we're saying God is our father, then, then he has the right as a dad to be our dad. Psalms 103 says this, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He's a good dad. But what's interesting, by the time Jesus rolls around, who does he claim is their true father? Again, he's extremely clear and extremely cutting when you go to John chapter 8 and verse 44. In fact, they were giving honor to their father as the Jews, particularly the leadership. And Jesus clearly and concisely points this out by stating that you are of your father, the devil. God is a good father. And that's the first pattern that you and I have to understand in our relationship to him. The second pattern is then seeing him as holy. Father, hallowed be your name. That's all that means. I mean, that's like this old English feel to it, doesn't it? Hallowed. We don't go around talking that way. It's just holy. It's sacred. He is far above us. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. That's this idea of his sacredness when it comes to our prayer. It's the recognition of what kind of God he is. What his fatherhood is like. 
And that's paramount to our prayer as we seek nothing more than that. To seek nothing more of that in our good God. See, in other words, that becomes our filter as we pray. It's the, filter, the filtration that we get this balance in our life so we don't come to him with a laundry list of stuff. It's okay to do that. We'll get to that. But the pattern of what we're, Jesus is pushing for is the posture that he is our dad, that he is a, a dad that needs to be honored, holy, set aside, set above. And it's our recognition of that as we pray. Teach me to pray like that. It's because of his love for you and for me when I was unlovable. When he died for my sin. That's why he's sacred. And then he calls me to come to him like a good dad does. See, these first two patterns eliminate all selfishness in our prayer life. Hallowed be God's name, not mine. It's not mine, but his. At the end of the day, when you think about your life, I believe when you sum it all up, all you really have is your name, isn't it? Oh, you can have lots of things and stuff, but at the end of the day, all you have is your name and what's behind that. So when we hallow his name... It's an expression of the nature and character of who God is. When someone says your name or thinks about your name, they have this, this image of who you are, the character and nature of who you are. So when you hallow God's name, when you express his name as holy, you're expressing his nature. You're honoring his nature, meaning because he is your God, he is a good father, you're going to express such enormous respect for him that you would never devalue him in word order. You would never dishonor your family, in other words, in expression or in your actions. Nothing that wouldn't exalt him. So you see taking the Lord's name in vain is far more than just a verbal expletive being blurted out. Now we do that. The Bible calls that sin. It's missing the mark. But this Father who is holy made a way for reconciliation and regeneration. So you see the psalmist in Psalm 9. Those who know your name put, your, put their trust in you. And Jesus uses this in John 17. I have manifested your name to the people. What is he doing? He's demonstrating his character. He's telling them, this is the God you've been called to serve. He's showing them the character and nature of God. You want to study, do a good word study? Just study the names of God in the Old Testament. Elohim, Creator, Jireh, the Lord will provide. There, there's a litany of those Hebrew names of the nature and character of who God is. And so you and I, as his beloved, come to his throne with one singular purpose when it comes to our prayer and that's to glorify a loving, caring, gracious, gentle, compassionate, holy, sacred Father. That's who we're coming to. And Jesus wants them to know that up front. This isn't just another way of seeking my kingdom first, right? Then all those things that I have in the back that I can't wait to rush to get to him uh, that he can help me out with maybe. But it's the point that I come recognizing my position 
and his, that he is alone worthy of worship, and I'm not. Because that's the balance we need. See, if I err on the side of, oh, God's just a good dad, and he's just this you know, big Santa Claus in the sky and gives me this laundry list, um, I can continue to sin my life, and he's just going to forgive me over and over again, and it's no big deal. He's just going to forgive me anyway. Well, it is a big deal. We won't say that, but we'll live it. And so when Paul says in Galatians 5, don't use your freedom, which we, and we just saying, don't use your freedom in Christ to satisfy your sinful nature or the flesh. But use that freedom to serve one another, to glorify God, in other words. Paul in Romans, shall we sin that grace abounds? No, you can't. You've died to it. How can you live it any longer? It's the same thing. All this does is show this misunderstanding of the nature of God's grace and abundance. And what it really shows is contempt for the family of God. Contempt for a holy and just God. That's what it demonstrates. To balance that, in Jewish culture, some of the things they would, some of the prayers would start out something like this. O Lord, Father, and Master of my life. You hear it? It's in balance. I don't bend one way or the other. That God's just this, he's just here like a vending machine to give me everything I want, and he's just going to love me anyway, no matter what I do. And I don't go on the other side here where he's this, again, this all-consuming fire that there's no compassion. It's just judgment, judgment, judgment. You, you don't err in either direction. That's his point. So let me combine these first two and call them prayers of adoration. When you can, these two patterns in our prayer life. So you might express God's majesty and pray Psalms chapter 8. And here's just a few references. If you need rescue or protection, you might want to pray Psalms 18. If you want to praise Him for who He is, the nature and character of who He is, you might consider Psalms 29, your daily needs, Psalms 145. Prayers for mercy, Nehemiah 9. And if life is caught you in a place where there is suffering, Job offers you something poignant in Job chapter 42. Let me give you one example of a way you can combine these in adoration. This is, we read Psalm 61 this morning in our Bible reading. And this is from Psalm 62, the very next chapter. God has spoken plainly, and I have heard it many times. This is Psalm 62, 11. Power, O God, belongs to you. That's this adoration of the nature and character of God. He's a good dad because he speaks clear. It's understandable. He's not trying to create any fog in your eye. There, there's no ambiguity at all. And he repeats himself, so you do get it. How many of you parents have to repeat something to your children? Oh, my goodness. How, my wife, she's just, she's just, I can, I can always, I can read her mind for the first time in my life. She's thinking, man, I just did that to you yesterday. <laughs> How many times do I got to do? <laughs> More than once, right? So God is a good God. He speaks clearly and he repeats himself because sometimes I don't get it. What is he referring to? Power of God belongs to you. It's my dependence on who you are. So you might say a prayer like this, Almighty God and Father, I feel like life is like the disciples when they were in the boat being tossed about. 
the things I can't control in my own life. Help me to know the power of Jesus that, like that day when he calmed the storms. God, I need your peace that you said you'd give. That's a reference to John 14, 27. To know your power and not let my heart be troubled. Father, it is so easy for me to be overwhelmed by the waves of hard circumstances. Yet all power belongs to you. I need not fear. Father, thank you for your mighty power working in my life even now. Thank you, Holy Spirit, who gives me the strength to do what I've been redeemed to do. God, let me never forget where my source of power and life comes from. Does that sound like a good prayer? Here's the third pattern. Your kingdom come. There is only one kingdom that's going to last, and it's not yours or mine. As we've been working through the gospel of Mark, this is what Jesus has been doing. He's been teaching and proclaiming the kingdom is here. His whole purpose, the kingdom of heaven, is at hand. And he called 12 men to come alongside him to take up this mission. And so he's been preparing them to live and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Again, no one in the rest of the world at this point understands or knows what that even means. And so here's the prayer. God, do whatever moves your kingdom in my life in the hour in which I'm living in this moment. It's a prayer like that. Your kingdom come. Use my life to move that along. My meager offering, my, in all my insecurity, in all my stumblingness of, of what I do, how I do it, and, and every relationship that I have, where I am, where I'm going. God, use it all to move your kingdom. If you'd consider for a moment, you and I sitting here this morning, those of you that know the Lord, you are the answer to that prayer so long ago. And now you and I need to do the same work for those who will come behind us. Gospel planters, cultivators, and harvesters. Because God's the one who gives us the increase. Can I ask you something? I will. <laughs> Have you had enough of Satan's kingdom in this culture? Have you had enough of the darkness in our nation, maybe in our families or our, my own life? But can I ask you, are we praying God's kingdom to come? How does it come, maybe you're asking? One gospel conversation at a time. One life at a time. That's how it comes. One soul at a time. Are you and I committed to praying for those and are willing to be the means in which that happens? Where is it coming to? It's coming to earth. What does that look like? Again, you're in it. The church, that's what it looks like. That's where the kingdom is being, is being advanced. So Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit here in this place on us as a people to glorify you, to bring salvation to those where we live, work, and play. We're still in the darkness. Pour it out here, Lord. Fill us here to put you on display so people would see your deep and endless love by our example. 
let them see our love for one another. Let them see it. Let them desire it. Let them hunger after after it. Give us the will even to, to fight evil. To pierce the darkness with the light of Christ. Grant us to be rebels against the world and its sinful fallen systems. The systems that now call good evil and evil good. God, give us the resolve to never give in to evil, to never give up any ground and never quit until you call us home or until the Lord returns. God, let us be found faithful in the work you have called us to do. That's just Ephesians 4 and 5. Your kingdom come. Here's the last one for today because we're running out of time. And this is where I'm mushing them together because your will be done is parted over from Matthew chapter 6. Why is this so important to you? Well, we covered this back in Mark chapter 3. This is why this is so important. This is why you need to care, you need to understand, and why you and I need to be retaught and, and refocus our prayer life if we're struggling. This is why this is so important. Mark 3.35, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, my sister, and my mother. Remember, Jesus is in Capernaum. The crowds are crushing. He's there. Uh, his parents, his siblings are coming to him. And he's in there teaching. There's no way they can get to him. And someone says, hey, your mom and dad, or your mom and your brother and sisters are here. They want to talk to you. Kind of. I mean, that's the, that's the inference. That's, that's the reference. But whoever does the will of my father, what's God's will? Well, here's a brief list. I don't know if I put these on the slide so you could write them down. But here's a list, specifically in God's word, where you can go, this is God's will for you, for me. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. That's... God's will for you. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 and 5. That's God's will for you. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. I mean, there's a laundry list where it specifically says, this is the will of God, and then there it is. 1 Peter 2, 15. James 4, 15. I'm probably going too fast, I know. <laughs> But let me share this one. Psalms 143.10. Teach me to do your will. Teach me to pray. I have to be taught how to do the Lord's will. For you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. See, praying, when you come to learning how to pray, it's not this arm-twisting exercise to try to force God's hand. As if that were even possible. But it... It is by its very nature and act in your life and mine. It is a humble expression of a helpless and dependent child. An act of faith that believes so strongly in the nature and character of who God is that he will move and that he will act on behalf of his children. And if you're sitting here thinking, man, I want to have a prayer life like that, just start. And if you're wondering why you don't get the answers, maybe it's because you're just not asking. Your relationship has moved away just like the Israelites, and you've stopped. Just start. Repent and start again. Or, as James 4 says, if you ask, now you're asking for the wrong motives. You're asking for 
your will, your happiness, your comfort, your ease, and so on and so forth. 1 John 5 says this, and this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Let me pause right there. Are you understanding and hearing what the half-brother of Jesus is saying, even though he didn't put it into words? This is how we ask, according to his will. Why is that? Because he is our father, because it's his kingdom. And if we know that he hears us, we know that we will have the request that we have asked of him. That's powerful. I just have to line my life up with that. Are you so frustrated in your prayer life because you don't think God is responding? This could be one of the reasons why. Again, if your children kept asking you for things over and over and over for you, but never wanting really to be in relationship with you, they just see you as, this is where I get the good stuff. What kind of relationship would you have with your kids? We need to ask things that God will say yes to, which is found in Luke chapter 11, verse 3. Give us each day our daily bread. Sounds an awful lot like the Israelites coming out of Egypt, doesn't it? When God rained down, he's raining down manna, and then he says, Look it, hey, I need you to pay attention. I only need you to pick up each day's resource for you. And you keep praying, and guess what? It'll be there the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Why? Why is that so valuable for you and I to know? Because it demonstrates this relationship, how good God is. What if he just, oh yeah, here's a, here's a bazillion dollars. Good? All right, see you, bye. Yeah, you don't need him anymore. You don't, this relationship. Why? Because he knows our heart. Read the Old Testament, right? You see what the Israelites did. But this daily necessity and need that I have, look at what's the bread? I mean, that's a physical example of a spiritual truth, Jesus says. He is the bread. What? The gospel of Jesus Christ. If you think the gospel was just the day you were baptized or the day you received Jesus Christ and that was it, you are sorely mistaken. It's the thing that you need each and every day of your life. It's the good news that happens today. It's going to happen tomorrow. It wasn't this point in history. Oh, okay, that's done. Here's your million bucks. Go do life. That's not how this works. He is actively moving in your life. Why? So his name can be magnified and glorified. So his kingdom can flow through you. And guess what you get? Verse 3, which we'll get to next week. <laughs> These things must be taught. So let me ask you this as we close. Why not ask God this week a simple, powerful, plaudent prayer? Again, that just means praiseworthy. Lord, teach me to pray. Heavenly Father, you are our good and righteous God. You are holy and pure and all the things that we are not you describe yours you are just so much higher than we are 
and anything that we can afford or understand in our own mind. We are your creation. So, Father, here we are, humbly coming before you as our good dad, our Abba Father, seeking you out to lift up your name as we sing worship and praise songs, as we worship over your word this morning, as you move in our life with the gospel. Father, it's just a humbling understanding to know that even when I am that selfish, sinful child and see you sometimes and treat you as just give me this, that my pattern and order is all out of sorts. So, Father, help us to pray as you would have us in a right relationship, a loving relationship, to recognize your nature and character as a good and holy God who disciplines, who lavishes, who wants to see his children thrive in the midst of a sea of pagan sinful culture. God, I ask now that you would magnify your name and your kingdom and these people, your church, here in this place. In Jesus' name.